Hey, hey everyone, back again. Today I'm gonna to present my third publication on Vaporwave, which I wrote in 2019 at some point, I think. Uh, and this is found in a journal titled The Australian Journal of Popular Culture, which you can get access to by ordering it through your library. It is unfortunately also behind a paywall. Uh, but before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, your friends who knows they might get a kick out of it and you'll see videos i release every single week uh, and there's a whole backlog of stuff there that you can go check out uh, if you want to help me out do all those things i said or you can help me out via or monetarily via patreon or paypal but obviously no pressure yeah let's jump into this thing i wrote and this is the article i, I like the best that i've written it's been a few years since i've actually read it so who knows i might have I might be reacting to it in real time and you'll see that maybe I don't like it as much as I thought, but in any case, um, I liked it when I wrote it. Now, despite what I say here, I really like Vaporwave. Vaporwave is probably the musical genre I listen to the most, which might be weird. And for those that aren't familiar, Vaporwave, kind of a strange thing to define. Uh, there are many offshoots of Vaporwave, but it's a musical genre essentially that it's a very atmospheric genre of music that often borrows and samples tracks from the 80s and 90s and slows them down to give them a kind of baritone-y, uh, moody feel. Uh, now, I know I'm not being very specific and I'll get into more as we get in here, uh, but if you don't know what it is, you gotta listen to it to really know what's going on. Uh, and you might, you might really like it because it's pretty cool. So yeah. Uh, let's jump into it. It's titled Vapor Memory or Memory in the Ruins of History. Now, I start this out with two epigraphs. The first one is from uh, a Sandra Wave, which is a, an offshoot of Vaporwave, Sandra Wave video that reads as follows. This makes me feel like I'm looking at pages of a yearbook from a high school I never went to. Now, the next epigraph is from probably the most seminal um, vaporwave album that is Macintosh Plus by Vectroid with uh, Floral Shop that goes as follows. So they write, seriously, no review by musical critic is able to kill that vibe no matter in what way it is achieved. This is just pure gold. What that album does to your soul, suddenly all the cyberpunk and anime cities seem like heaven. Now the first epigraph above is a comment on the vaporwave album titled Corp Sanderwave an album composed of heavily edited songs by the German pop singer Sandra. The songs are slowed down, lowering their pitches, producing dulcet tones that seem to be less for enjoyment than for the regulation of mood, as Trainer argues. Now Sandra Wave is an example of Vaporwave. It is derivative to it, but it does belong to that camp, which is a highly stylistic genre of music birthed in the early 2010s that primarily features sampled pop music from the 90s and 80s. Its musical quality exists alongside an easily recognizable aesthetic commitment to the 80s and 90s advertisements, office spaces, empty malls, Chinese and other Asian uh, countries' iconography and graph themes, ancient Greek and Roman art and architecture, as well as other things, of course. Now, the complexity of its aesthetic and musical style belies any easily discernible rules for its conduct and provides for it the illusion of perpetual transformation and flux. Now, on the surface, Vaporwave is without time nor space, free to travel wherever its producers, often anonymized producers, wish to take it. Now for the author of the first epigraph, that is the epigraph talking about the yearbook, 
Corp sand or wave transports them to a time and place that is decidedly different than the one they currently occupy, to a high school they never attended. The potency of their comment finds its realization in the undecidability of its object, a yearbook from an undisclosed time and place. Undecidability presents a foray into an imaginative possibility for the reader, ostensibly emancipating them, albeit temporarily and fleetingly, from the confinement of their daily lives. The undecidability of the yearbook is underwritten by the tacit understanding that any imaginative transference must be directed towards an ambiguous past. However, Vaporwave does not only look to the past. Accordingly, the future positions itself as a correlative to Vaporwave's emphasis on the past, with highly sanitized images of, of, uh, of malls and office buildings that are most often hauntingly vacant. They depict post-human scenes where all that remains are the ruins of late capitalist middle-class consumption and labor practices. The second epigraph evokes the sense of Vaporwave's futurism when it professes that Macintosh plus, plus his floral shop by Vectroid, a seminal Vaporwave album, makes cyberpunk and anime cities seem like heaven. Both cyberpunk and anime cities are invaluably futurist in their depictions of fictional and imaginative technologies and spaces. In this way, Vaporwave positions itself towards the future as an accelerationist aesthetic. Vaporwave exists at the interstice of the past and the future, leading some commentators like Adam Trainer to brand it as retrofuturist. In blending the past and future, Vaporwave extends itself beyond the banality of the present into the contested realm of the past and the unknowable realm of the future. The product is an apparent deconstruction of the teleological and positivist assumptions of linear time, where past and future converge in the present moment of its realization. This removes the listener from the present and places them into an indeterminable retrofuturist time zone belonging neither explicitly to the past or to the future. Now this article argues that Vaporwave appropriates the past and the future to generate a non-site for the displacement of the present. Enthusiasts of that uh, of the genre assert that in doing so, Vaporwave presents itself as a radical project that decenters the subject's location within the linear matrix of time, Grafton Tanner for example, and houses the potential to oppose the humanistic territorializations of late capitalism, uh, like the work of Killeen or Willan and Nowak. In contrast, I argue that these commentators focus too closely on Vaporwave's style and aesthetic dimension without considering its maintenance of various structures of oppression and appropriation indicative of globalized capitalism. To engage with Vaporwave then demands a bifurcation of its outward rhizomatic veneer on the one hand, and the codes, conventions, and axiomatics that underwrite it on the other. To argue this, I draw upon Jean Baudrillard's challenge to accelerationist and technologist politics of subversion for the replication of rather than challenge to the oppressive structures of capitalism and cultural appropriation. Additionally, I make use of many feminist and critical race approaches to highlight the affinities between Vaporwave's appropriative style and the logics of late capitalism. Now, to explicate on my assertions, this article is divided into two broad sections. The first attends to the scholarly perspectives that position Vaporwave's blending of nostalgia and futurism as an act of transgression, presenting the myriad positions advocating for Vaporwave's political efficacy. It attends to these perspectives, contextualizing their approaches within the continental philosophical tradition to make their place in this critique clear. The second section turns a critical eye towards these perspectives, highlighting the implicit similarities between vaporwave and capitalist appropriation of nostalgia for the accumulation of capital and the constitution of, not the decentering of, the subject. Now that puts us into the first section here titled Critical Approaches to Vaporwave and its Use of Nostalgia. So nostalgia figures prominently in Vaporwave that is 
quote, formed by both collective popular many, memory and the personal histories of its creators. That's Trainer. The site of nostalgic recollection is localized to the late 1980s and early 1990s popular culture, with its, which is adduced by the fact that most of Vaporwave's producers are men in their 20s, uh, which is a figure from Keenan. Their personal histories are thus prefigured by their similar childhoods, most often in late 20th century North America, providing a common aesthetic nostalgic reservoir to draw from. Oh, and I feel like I should mention this. My favorite Vaporwave artist, Waterfront Dining. You gotta go listen to Waterfront Dining. If you're curious, well, you gotta go listen to Macintosh uh, 420 Floral Shop. Go, Go do that. That is the seminal thing. But Waterfront Dining is like the most, my preferred one. Anyways, putting that out there. Okay, sorry, sorry. So their personal histories are thus prefigured by their similar childhoods, most often in late 20th century North America, providing a common aesthetic nostalgic reservoir to draw from. Vaporwave affords an opportunity to summon a past that might not otherwise emerge clearly or concretely. A return to the relatively safe, relative safety of childhood, even for those people who enjoy Vaporwave, but who may not have lived through the time it extols, it elicits a compensatory nostalgia, and that's from Healy, for those without their own histories to draw from. A psychoanalytic reading of this desire might be fruitful, but is yet to, has yet to receive much scholarly attention. Uh, without drawing too extensively from psychoanalysis to engage with Vaporwave, I put forward the argument that Vaporwave's insistence on mood-regulating sights and sounds construct the past as a safe, sanitized zone afforded by corporate benevolence. The implications of Vaporwave's Aesthetic style and musical quality have been lauded by many commentators. Perhaps one of the most generous readings of Vaporwave is put forward by Grafton Tanner, who, in his book Babbling Corpse, Vaporwave and the Commodification of Ghosts, suggests that Vaporwave, despite its insistence on corporate culture, embodies an aura of self-reflexive parody by, quote, mocking and subverting the entire process. He contrasts Vaporwave to the widely accepted mainstream currents of popular music like Taylor Swift, who, he argues, is simply an arbiter of the corporate culture. According to Tanner, the difference between Vaporwave and the type of music indicative of Taylor Swift may be observed a posteriori uh, through experience, where Vaporwave invites us to react emotionally to a genre of music that has subversive potential, in his words. Now, such a characterization of Vaporwave's potential hinges upon one's experience of Vaporwave to elicit a very specific emotional response. By this logic, it is then decidedly subjective, there is thus no way, no way to analytically differentiate the two streams of music, vaporwave on the one hand and mainstream popular music on the other. And so Tanner assesses them by their propensity to affect their listeners' subversive potentials. However, Tanner provides no quantitative evidence to support this claim, nor does he delineate this form of subversion, nor the power structures uh, he vaguely labels as corporatism or belonging to that. Taylor Swift, on the other hand, has mobilized a massive political following. CNN reports that there was a significant increase in voter registration after Taylor Swift wedded into political politics, or into uh, politics. Tanner might want to brush off any such political action as an extension of the very system it attempts to challenge, a point I I would agree with, uh, but Swift's relative efficacy in relation to Vaporwave cannot be denied. Tanner's approach goes further than this, however, obviously, accentuating Vaporwave's propensity to motivate anthrodecentrism, the decentering of the human on the world stage. The non-human articulations of Vaporwave are actualized in its delimiting humanity's coextensive association with technology. Vaporwave captures the early 21st century as an accelerated anthrodecentric world 
quickly becoming more simulated and more digitized with every passing year. That's Tanner saying that as well. Vaporwave's nostalgic, non-human aesthetic strips the human of its primacy in the world, illustrating it as a series of interconnected parts comprising a never-completed totality, without which the human loses its capacity to claim dominion over the world and the people and non-human animals that inhabit it. In this way, Vaporwave is meant to match the violence committed by late capitalism that is plagued by trauma and regression, a coping strategy that allows a certain degree of mobility to traverse the few safe sites available to these post-human listeners. As such, we find ourselves living in a state of atemporality, yearning for a time before the present, as Tanner writes. Now for Tanner, late capitalism provides the solution to the problem it creates. It decenters the human, producing a general ethos of anxiety that can be mitigated by appropriating this decentering and positioning the non-human wherever they desire to be. Nostalgia is such a strategy in Vaporwave, casting the listener into a safe, determinable space that opposes the deterritorializing flows of late capitalism. Affect lies at the core of this possibility, positioning the human not as a totalized singularity, but as an amalgamation of feelings, emotions, and desires. Affect theory is fundamental to a number of critical perspectives of Vaporwave. Colleen defines any effective potential as an emergent potential as yet unmarked by ideological determinations while Trainer exalts affect for its propensity to, propensity to remove the sociopolitical and ideological implications from a media text. Affect transcends ideology for Colleen and Trainer, representing an innate physiological engagement with the world. This approach is undoubtedly inspired by the work of Deleuze and Guattari, even though their words are sparsely invoked. For Deleuze and Guattari, they write that flows of intensity, their fluids, their fibers, their continuums, and conjunctions of effects, the wind, fine segmentation, micro-perceptions, have replaced the world of the subject. Affect decenters the human as Tanner describes it, presenting a foray for continual flux, metamorphosis, and becoming. Affect is a pre-ideological phenomenon, an ontological condition of all human experience in relation with things, humans, and the world at large. Capitalism appropriates these effective energies by deterritorializing for the sake of the accumulation of capital in the exploitation of new markets and resources. Given this fact of capitalist exploitation, it is difficult to surmise how affect theory might oppose this tendency of late capitalism without simply contributing to it or uh, replicating it. Colleen does not address this problem, opting to instead laud Vaporwave as transgressive by virtue of its mobilization of, in uh, Colleen's words, energies as potential. For example, Colleen considers St. Pepsi's private caller a discernibly upbeat Vaporwave track that features images from Japanese popular culture. Uh, to argue that the upbeat timbre of this track elicits a sense of joy, transporting the listener to a joyous Japanese social sphere that vitalizes the, in Colleen's words, inherent vitality, dynamism, and transformation of life. So by situating affect squarely within Vaporwave's aesthetic commitment, Colleen aligns Vaporwave with a poetic intervention rather than an explicit social critique. It is unclear how Vaporwave does this differently from any other genre of music, however, if the capacity to elicit joy is the only criterion for an effective political project, then almost all musical genres, including Taylor Swift or any, any artist, can be valorized for housing this potential. To this implicit attribution of transgressive potential to affect or the capacity to elicit joy, Ben Anderson puts forward the concern that it cannot then be assumed that affect automatically opens up to a limitless outside of such mechanisms function through the generate excess of knowing and percepting, uh, pre precipitating emergence. This necessitates a detour 
through Deleuze and Guattari for, for me here, uh, and how they characterize the oppressive tendencies of late capitalism, in order to qualify Killeen and Trainer's characterization of affect's propensity for poetic intervention. Now, in Anti-Oedipus, Deleuze and Guattari argue that modern capitalist societies deterritorialize with one hand what they re-territorialize with the other. Deterritorialization occurs in tandem with the flows of capital that strive to locate new markets for exploitation. Re-territorialization, on the other hand, occurs when specific zones, the state, the family, religion, the psychoanalyst, whatever, are invested with a real value that they would otherwise not have. Too much deterritorialization threatens the system and so it grounds itself with various stable territories to support and brace its superstructure. Deleuze and Guattari's characterization of capitalism explains the simultaneous uprooting of nationhood, borders, and cultures, while still fostering the emergence of populism and neo-fascism around the globe. Capitalism is careful in its distribution of the potentialities it affords. Some people are restricted, especially those that are racialized or who do not accommodate a very precise notion of gender, for example. Capitalism dissimulates its restrictive agenda, veiling itself with a veneer of endless potential, effective energies, and rhizomatic possibility, unless you fail to adhere to its axiomatics. Deleuze and Guattari are not fooled by this, however, suggesting that under capitalism, international economic relations, and at the limit all international relations, tend towards the homogenization of social formations. These homogenous forms are what they call axiomatics of capitalism that possess a deliberate will to halt, or stabilize the diagram to take its place by lodging itself on a level of coagulated abstraction axiomatic. The axiomatic deals directly with purely functional elements and relations whose nature is not specified. Now in the next section I present how Vaporwave emulates this logic of capitalism presenting itself as a site for endless potential while veiling a rigid axiomatic underbelly. For now let us reconsider Killeen and Trainer's faith in affect to oppose the oppressive logics of late capitalism. When Killeen and Trainer emphasize the capacity of joy to challenge the tenets of late capitalism, they position Vaporwave as a force from within capitalism to undermine capitalism. Vaporwave might then be properly situated to identify capitalism's rigid underbelly, or territories, which Deleuze and Guattari describe them, or how they describe them. Nostalgia is used to call attention to spaces and sounds that might have gone unnoticed in the banal movements of everyday life under late capitalism. Now, as an effective genre that exhibits some political potential, Vaporwave can be argued, albeit tenuously, to identify the reality of alienation under capitalist exploitation. This is adduced by the anthrodecentrism imminent to Vaporwave's aesthetic that gives primacy to disembodied space and robotic sounds. Killeen and Trainer's emphasis on, on joy may then benefit from its juxtaposition with the harsh reality of post-human hyperreality fostered under late capitalism. With the joy attached to nostalgic sentiment, Vaporwave provides a safe avenue to confront the harsh realities of capitalist alienation. Of course, this is not their argument. I've only supplied this argument to supplement those put forward by Killeen and Trainer. Using their work, we can glean a glimmer of Vaporwave's transgressive potential, even if its modus operandi is never to uh, invest that potential. To do so would be to cast Vaporwave into the harsh reality of the present and to evacuate it of its nostalgic dimension and therefore its joy. Let us now consider Vaporwave as a site to unearth revolutionary energies that may reside in forms and objects of the outmoded, as Killeen writes, to posit its affiliation with the oppressive tendencies of late capitalism. This puts us into the next section, Resurrecting Alienation, Nostalgia for Corporate Culture. So the internet has been celebrated for its propensity to bring, to, bring together disparate people and ideas in, a, in an accessible and facile way. 
However, the internet and the many platforms that inhabit it does not always demonstrate such a cosmopolitan character. And from microsound of vaporwave, internet-mediated music, online methods, and genre, Georgina Bourne and Christopher Haworth reveal that despite the commentator's arguments presented in the first section about vaporwave's transgressive potential, vaporwave tends towards homogenization, not heterogeneity. They provide this by, uh, by employing the issue crawler, a tool used to trace the trajectories of networks on the internet that found Vaporwave to be squarely Anglo-American in terms of the domain name location of the majority of its subcultural participants. Vaporwave then assumes two identities, its outward identity composed of rhizomatic sights and sounds, and its inner identity that gravitates towards very specific and homogenous areas of the internet. A contributing factor to Vaporwave's interior homogeneity is the fact that its producers are primarily white men in their 20s. Of course, it would be remiss if we did not acknowledge that Floral Shop, arguably, arguably the most influential Vaporwave album, was produced by a trans woman who assumes the handle Vectroid. Now, interestingly, uh, and this is, I only mentioned this in a footnote, in all the research that I done at the time, I didn't really see much mention of that, that fact, or really much of um, an attribution of credit to Vectroid, but in any case, uh, it's an interesting note. Vaporwave's use of Orientalist images of East Asia, in quotes, that's their language, is then nothing short of appropriation. In Eating the Other, Bell Hooks states that when race and ethnicity become commodified as resources for pleasure, the culture of specific groups as well as the bodies of individuals can be seen as constituting an alternative playground where members of dominating races, genders, sexual practices affirm their power over intimate relations with the other. Vaporwave is a meeting place for this commodification, removing cultural icons from their contexts and organizing them in a rhizomatic assemblage of disparate signifiers. Hook's emphasis on appropriation for the sake of pleasure speaks to Colleen's emphasis on St. Pepsi's private collar that borrows from Japanese culture to elicit a very specific feeling of joy. Vaporwave joyfully mines other cultures for signifiers that might communicate joy to its listeners, primarily white men in North America in their 20s. Uh, the other is here transformed into a fetishized icon that is loaded with the potential to wrest the listener from their place in the alienating sphere of late capitalism. And so given that capitalism's tendrils extend to any viable market for exploitation, Vaporwave appears to be an appendage of the very exploitative dimension of globalized capitalism its emissaries claims that it challenges. As has already been demonstrated, not all of Vaporwave's aesthetic commitments draw from other cultures, however. There is also a strong emphasis on corporate and consumer spaces. Both of these aesthetic sites are enveloped within a decidedly retrofuturist veneer. It is ironic, but the coupling of Vaporwave's nostalgic dimension with the corporate spaces seems to force the listener to look back upon mundane, white-collar corporate life with starry-eyed exultation. The depiction of absent malls might be a commentary on the dissipation of the middle class, and so we look back upon corporate life, no matter how alienating and banal and toxic, as a lesser evil than the insecurity and precarity presented by the gig economy facilitated by the emergence of the internet. In a Vaporwave video titled Real Estate Vaporwave Mix, which you should go listen to, it's great, uh, that includes the image of two office buildings against the backdrop of the Los Angeles evening sky, one commenter writes that the picture oozes corporate cleanliness and aesthetic. Bland cubicles, fake plants, beige electronic plastic, neutral smell, grayish carpets, and employee of the month picture all in one. Very nice. The relative security and safety of white collar work marks it as a zone of 
nostalgic sentiment. We must ask, however, what exactly comprises the nostalgic sentiment of this space? This comment provides a specious illustration of this lifestyle, avoiding to couple it with the harsh realities of this corporate culture. Harassment in the workplace, for example, gender and race-based discrimination, not to mention the exploitation of trading and labor practices uh, upon which this culture depends for sustenance. In the nostalgic return to the site, it is sanitized of all negativity and served up as a delectable alternative to the present situation. Nostalgia does more than simply evoke a sense of joy then for Killeen, uh, that Killeen and Trainer applaud. It simulates a period of time by effacing its negative effects. Vaporwave then corresponds to Baudrillard's apocalyptic hypothesis that in America, among the ruins that mark the end of history, it is as though, in his words, history were rifling through its own dustbins and looking for redemption in the rubbish. Whereas Killeen, drawing from the work of Walter Benjamin, looks to the past to find revolutionary energies and effective potentials, drawing from, of course, the Arcades project, or being inspired by it. Baudrillard is skeptical, however, of any redemption among the ruins of modernity. In 86, Baudrillard wrote this of us, as he writes, nostalgic utopians. He writes that we shall remain nostalgic utopians, agonizing over our ideals, but balking ultimately at their realization, professing that everything is possible, but never that everything has been achieved. Yet, what is, yet that is what America asserts. Our problem is that our old goals, revolution, progress, freedom, will have evaporated before they were achieved, before they became reality, hence our melancholy. Nostalgia seems to be closer to what Keenan labels the memory of a memory, a simulacrum, a copy without an original. The repetitive utterances of the past then reify the past as a tangible location to project our desires, and in doing so, alter and shape the past to match our perception of it. Vaporwave thus not only constitutes corporate culture as a stable location for fantasy transference, it constitutes and affirms the very logic of the historical reflection as a method to engage with an ostensibly real past. This is the greatest trick of the simulacrum for Baudrillard. Uh, it dissimulates the fact that there is nothing behind it. Baudrillard did not live long enough to witness the advent of Vaporwave, but we may postulate its correlative in his oeuvre with this treatment of Lana and Lily Wachowski's The Matrix, of which it's and this is uh, Baudrillard now, chief value is that it pushes all these elements to a paroxysm, yet it does it more crudely and in a far less complex way. Either the characters are in the matrix and belong to the digitized universe, or they are radically outside it, in Zion, the resistor city. It would be interesting to show what happens at the point where these two worlds meet. The most embarrassing part of the film is that it confuses the new problem raised by simulation with its arch-classical platonic treatment. This is a serious flaw. The Matrix is then, for Baudrillard, the kind of film about the Matrix that the Matrix itself could have produced. In the Matrix, the viewer is confronted with two human groups, both those within the Matrix and those who belong to the city of Zion. Surprisingly, both the Matrix and Zion seem to be without conflict. The only conflict that emerges in either is when one risks spilling over into the other, when the machines threaten Zion or when the people of Zion enter the Matrix. On their own, they are both somewhat utopian, without internal conflict like discrimination and oppression. The Matrix resembles Vaporwave in this way by effacing the struggles imminent to any social paradigm and restricting society's struggle and redemption to our proximity to technology. Baudrillard classifies this effort as a kind of historical revisionism, in his words, the whitewashing of a dirty history of dirty money of corporate consciences, of the polluted planet, 
the cleansing of memory, the cleansing of the environment. By submitting history to the simulacrum of the internet as a sanitized aesthetic, albeit an intractable and unstable aesthetic, it is evacuated of its negativity to proffer the myth of capitalist prosperity and satisfaction. Vaporwave is employed as a strategy to convince the listener about a real past, a truth confirmed by their embodied feelings, like nostalgic joy, with it. As Ahmed or Sarah Ahmed eloquently argues, our cultural emphasis on joy sets the stage for a willing condemnation of those that are, who are unhappy, who she calls affect aliens, and includes feminist killjoys, unhappy queers, and melancholic migrants, those people that are so often the victims of systemic oppression. History is rectified with Vaporwave's association of it with joy, the cultural signifier that is ostensibly pre-ideological as clean and trainer insists. But in this erasure of the political and a concomitant foreclosure of any association of effect with unhappy feelings, associating it only with joy, Colleen and Trainer locate the possibility of subversion within those capable of feeling joy or among those capable of feeling joy. What options are then left for the kinds of people that in this world, in both the past and present, uh, who are denied joy? Even if we accept that Vaporwave is a site for subversion, it appears as though its subversive capacity is reserved for those who might evince only happy effects, a kind of cruel optimism that Lauren Berlant laments. Vaporwave lies among the ruins of late capitalism. Vaporwave's sanitized nostalgic lens resembles a classic viewmaster, you know, that child's toy that contains pre-programmed or interchangeable photos. It calls upon the past as though the past were a stable and permeable location, constituting the past as real by virtue of its solidity. Our image of this past tells us nothing of the actual past. It's alienating reality under late capitalism, for instance, but only presents a foray into our own psyche, one yearning for a stable past and reality to cling to. Vaporwave's lionization of this past serves the strategic purpose of making life under late capitalism appear livable as a joyous zone of infinite potential. Here we might be reminded of the propensity of capitalism to both embody a spirit of perpetual deterritorializations and re-territorializations to keep it stable. In terms of recent technological developments, Wendy Chun labels this paradox the enduring ephemeral. In her discussion of software and its intersection with subjectivities, resembling those under discussion with, with Vaporwave here, Chun provides a theoretical template to transpose Deleuze and Guattari's diagnosis of late capitalism onto Vaporwave's mobilization of historical sentimentality and nostalgia to understand how a Vaporwave simultaneously stabilizes and destabilizes. In her book Software and Memory, Wendy Chun argues that software is paradoxical because it extends through time while perpetually confronting its own ephemerality, the enduring ephemeral through a process of constant regeneration, as she writes. The enduring ephemeral, that which repeats over and over again to guarantee stability, embodies an ideal model for longevity because software is not burdened by the classic dilemma presented by solipsism, that which is closed off to anything exterior to it. Software, like the flows of late capitalism, defers its collapse by internalizing both what is imminent to it, that is ephemerality, and what is anathema to it, which is uh, endurance or longevity. Software then has an inoculating function, injecting that which might com compromise it to become immune from that, that threat. The other that might have once opposed the system in its ontological difference and imminence is now integrated into that system. In the case of software, this does not correspond to an other as exteriority per se. The problem is much more abstract for Chun. As she proclaims, digital media's memory operates by annihilating memory. 
because memory is that which continually posits its own forgetting, which is a properly Derridian statement, uh, which is to say that memory traces to repeat Derrida's formulation, which produces the space of their inscription only by acceding to the period of their erasure. Software does not introduce what is exterior to it, it expels that which is imminent to it. Memory to continually rejuvenate its essence so that the system never completely closes in on itself, because then it would open itself up to collapse. Vaporwave is then a site of forgetting, a composite of a perpetual return to the past all the while erasing that past. It does less to transport the listener to another period of time than it naturalizes the very fantasy of such a return to a better time. Frederick Jameson's illustration of postmodern culture is prescient when considering Vaporwave's method. That is, under late capitalism, cultural production has nowhere to turn but to the past, the imitation of dead styles stored up in the imaginary museum of a now global culture. While germane, Jameson's admonishment of cultural production today only concerns itself with the act of cultural production as an extension of capitalist consumption, not with the implications of these forms of production. For example, we must ask what purpose this nostalgic repetition of a sanitized past does for the listener as a subject belonging to a particular cultural paradigm. As Chun demonstrates, the delicate equilibrium between memory and, uh, and its effacement is uh, efficacious for longevity. She takes this argument further, however, proposing that software as a thing reconceptualizes society, bodies, and memories in ways that both compromise and extend the subject, the user. Forming a cohesive matrix with the flows of late capitalism, she maintains that by ind individuating us, and also by integrating us into a totality, their interfaces offer us a form of mapping, of storing files central to our seemingly sovereign, empowered subjectivity, as she writes. Such an emphasis on the sovereign subject is articulated by Trainer, who applauds Vaporwave for fostering subjectivity as a conduit for creative engagement. In this context, we would do well to consider more closely this cybernetic subject. In the subject in power, Michel Foucault defines the subject as either subject to someone else by control and dependence, or the subject can be someone tied to their own identity as a conscience or self-knowledge. I am here concerned with the latter, where they're tied to themselves. The form of subjectivity that exists alongside the emergence of sites of knowledge production coextensive with liberal governmentality. This self is constituted through its continual self-affirmation. Nostalgia performs this function. By invigorating a, uh, to invigorate a history that the subject can draw upon to confirm their own subjectivity. Judith Butler, drawing from Foucault, suggests that the function of the subject as ficti fict fictive, Jesus, fictive origin, is to occlude the genealogy by which that subject is formed. In other words, this subject foregoes their own real history to enjoy the benefits of a free-floating existence. Vaporwave is one site for the occlusion of this genealogy, putting forth a sanitized image of the past to constitute the subject as a stable and joyous enterprise. The subject of Vaporwave participates in a nostalgic reconstruction of the past as readily accessible, constituting themselves in the process. There is no coincidence then that so many Vaporwave producers remain anonymous. Spivak suggests that anonymity is a strategy of desubjectification because any effort at desubjectification through the process of disappearance reconstitutes the very subjectivity it seeks to shed. For Spivak, anonymity is a privilege when this concealed subject pretends it has no geopolitical determinations. The parallels between this effort of desubjectification and the movements of late capitalism are unavoidable. And so Spivak reifies Marxist theory to combat post-structuralism's deconstruction of the subject. In her words, 
the subject curiously sewn together into a transparency by degenerations belongs to the exploiter side of the International Division of Labor. The non-subject is coextensive with the oppressive flows of late capitalism, a fact that intensifies when we consider race and gender. As Ahmed describes this as in relation to the invisibility of white cisgender or heterosexuality, describes this as the ability to move through the world without losing one's way. Vaporwave echoes this sentiment, constructing a non-place for its decidedly homogenous demographic of listeners, an ex essentially an extension of their daily experiences under late capitalism, rather than an escape from it. Baudrillard too is critical of anonymity, the anonymity imminent to Vaporwave's aesthetic erases identity, reducing everyone to the logic of exchange value. To participate in Vaporwave is then to shed one's identity, cultural, culture, or heritage, and to become one with the totalizing logic of the code, a moniker for the structural law of value, a law of equivalence that depends on the extinction of the original reference. In other words, Baudrillard attributes the term semiocracy, which is the total commutability of elements within a functional set, each taking on meaning only insofar as it is a term that is capable of structural variation in accordance with the code to this framework. Indeed, there is no better way to characterize Vaporwave's aesthetic. It does not delimit the borders of identity or difference, rather it appropriates them. Vaporwave's aesthetic, despite its claim to rhizomatic indeterminacy, gravitates around a very specific code that it must abide by. Simply because the rules of this code have not been written does not mean it's not there. As we explored above, Dodozunguatari made it clear that the axiomatic of capitalism deals directly with purely functional elements and relations, whose nature is not specified. And so we know that Vaporwave, despite its rhizomatic veneer, is guided by its very specific axiomatic logic. Appropriation is one such code, or axiom, along with the homogeneity of the people that produce it. And so any claim that Vaporwave challenges the rigidities of late capitalist exploitation is putting forth a nostalgic sentimentality uh, that essentially misattributes tr transgressive potential to Vaporwave. Additionally, by, by hearkening back to the 80s and 90s, which were a watershed moment of communicative ingenuity, Vaporwave strips these technologies of all negativity. For Vaporwave, the image of technology is an image of redemption and resurrection in the throes of late capitalist exploitation. Baudrillard is an unsurprisingly nihilistic, in an unsurprisingly nihilistic tone, typifies the location of salvation in media and technology as a strategic illusion, proffered up by the arbiters of communication. Despite this nihilism, and the nihilism often associated with Baudrillard's work, Baudrillard provides a pragmatic template with which to discern politically efficacious media from media that operates at the behest of the dominant classes. So while Baudrillard would undoubtedly look upon Vaporwave with repudiation, he does not, as someone like Christopher Norris would suggest, decline the possibility for mediated political action altogether. Let us now briefly put forward Baudrillard's critical approach to the media and his solution to accentuate some of the necessary components of a political aesthetic that does not replicate the very ideological underpinnings that it claims to destabilize, as I have argued Vaporwave does. Infer a critique of the political economy of the sign, uh, which is undoubtedly one of Baudrillard's uh, least studied texts, we find a number of critical and novel insights into the advent of technolog technology in the late 60s and 70s. Primarily, Baudrillard was skeptical of any productive use of these technologies to combat oppression. With mass communication comes not the democratization of speech, but the preclusion of speech in its reduction to a mediated form. For anything to be transmitted, Baudrillard argues it must be turned into exchange value, including transgression. And in this process, the message is evacuated of any radical potential. 
transformed into an easily digestible soundbite to disappear in the ocean of di digitized information. Through a Baudrillardian lens, Vaporwave participates in the dilution, dilution of any political message. After all, Vaporwave is less for enjoyment than for the regulation of mood, as Trainer writes. A point that belies even the already tenuous association of Vaporwave with some transgressive effect of joy. In the face of this epistemic appreciation of the faceless and the erasure of negativity, Baudrillard contrasts it with protest, paying specific attention to the way that something like graffiti, the art form of protest par excellence, smashes this logic of the code. Graffiti is transgressive not because it substitutes another content, another discourse, but simply because it responds there on the spot and breaches the fundamental role of non-response enunciated by all media. Beyond the spontaneity of graffiti's emergence, a fundamentally rhizomatic emergence, Baudrillard pays special attention to the way that identity is played out with graffiti. For him, graffitiists oppose pseudonyms rather than names to anonymity. They are seeking not to escape the combinatory in order to regain an identity, which is impossible in any case, but to turn indeterminacy against the system, to, deter to turn indeterminacy into extermination. While Vaporwave extends the logic of the capitalist system by embracing indeterminacy through anonymity, the graffiti artist responds to the system's indeterminacy with a highly sophisticated yet impenetrable esotericism. Pseudonyms that resist every interpretation and every connotation, no longer denoting anyone or anything. Unlike Vaporwave, graffiti does not maintain the system's delicate dialectical interplay between its rhizomatic surface and its rigid depths. It instead explodes the entire enterprise of media by responding anywhere by anyone, without being sanitized through the filter of the code. My turning to graffiti is not meant to position it as the only transgressive art form, of course, but to articulate its relative efficacy in relation to the overwhelmingly homogenous style of vaporwave. Here I have tried, this is the conclusion, here I have tried to argue that vaporwave, despite the myriad accommodations it has received, uh, or accolades it has received from commentators and scholars, extends rather than subverts the logic of late capitalism. Vaporwave does this by conveying a promise of emancipation for its listeners, a promise belied by its com complicity with the movements of late capitalism. When Colleen, Trainer, Tanner applaud Vaporwave for its effective potential and its nostalgic sentimentality, they set an all-too-easy challenge for Vaporwave to prove itself with. All music is essentially effective. And so it is difficult to say that Vaporwave is qualitatively different from any other genre in its capacity to elicit joy through its sentimentality. Conversely, I argue that Vaporwave, in its nostalgia for a highly sanitized past, does less to remove the subject from their alienation position under late capitalism in the 21st century than it actually constitutes that subject as a free-floating capitalist subject. In this way, Vaporwave participates in the flows of global capitalism, that do not recognize nor respect difference, essentially appropriating any identity categories it sees fit for the ostensible emancipation of its producers and listeners, a decidedly white and young demographic. Vaporwave might allow some to escape the alienation of their daily lives, but it's pointing to another heightened form of consumptive alienation and indicative of office spaces and malls, among other things, undermines its association with any radical potential. Vaporwave is but only a tributary of the river of capitalism that carves the surface of the earth. And that's that. Um, if you have any comments, I'd love to hear them. Um, or any critiques, I'd love to hear them. And yeah, I hope that you enjoyed that and catch you next time. Take care.